When it's time to give a truly special gift to that special someone in your life, why not turn to a jeweler you can trust? Solomon Brothers Jewelers is a family-owned business that's earned Atlanta's trust for decades with high quality, low prices, and the largest selection. Solomon Brothers has thousands of wedding bands, engagement rings, and loose diamonds in stock. Shop Solomon Brothers online at SolomonBrothers.com, SolomonBrothers.com, or stop by stores with locations in Buckhead or Alpharetta and experience the best. You're invited to take a vacation from everybody else's vacation to a place where you can explore cypress swamps and magical gardens and see a 65-foot waterfall that once powered an old mill that you can walk through today. Or just float along the cool, rushing waters of an old-fashioned swimming hole. See the places and plan your journey at visitmississippi.org slash outdoor adventure. Mississippi. Wanderers welcome. On another very exciting edition of Animation Deliberation, we welcome another guest from the animation and film industry. We've got with us Nina Helene Hurton, who has worked as an animation editor on series such as Duncanville, Curious George, Royal Monkey, and HBO Max's The Prince. Nina is a pre-visualization animator for notable films such as Godzilla vs. Kong, Venom, and Ant-Man and the Wasp. And to add to that already impressive portfolio, she is also a musician and director of music videos, including singing uh, under the name Derasnik. I think I may have gotten that wrong, but I, I hope she can correct us here soon. After these ads, we have no control over whatsoever. You're invited to take a vacation from everybody else's vacation to a place where you can explore cypress swamps and magical gardens and see a 65-foot waterfall that once powered an old mill that you can walk through today. Or just float along the cool, rushing waters of an old-fashioned swimming hole. See the places and plan your journey at visitmississippi.org slash outdoor adventure. Mississippi. Wanderers welcome. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Money is the number one cause of stress and the number two cause of divorce. Make your money go further and work harder with a certified financial planner from Facet Wealth. Financial planning used to focus on retirement, but Facet helps you with today. You get a dedicated financial planner that guides you through every financial decision. Inflation, interest rates, stock market changes, home prices. How do you figure it all out? Well, every advisor at Facet is a certified financial planner and fiduciary. That's just a fancy way to say they have the best training, and they're legally bound to do what's in your best interest. This isn't just about investments. It's about taking care of your money so you can start living a better life today. Facet has a simple flat fee, no hidden charges, and with nothing to sell, there are no commissions. Visit TryFacetWealth.com for two months free off your first year of financial planning. That's T-R-Y-F-A-C-E-T Wealth.com. Facet Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. Sing along if you know the words. One, two, three, it's time for animation, deliberation, a conversation and a celebration of our favorite action animated series. Yeah. 
All right, folks, welcome back to Animation Deliberation, the podcast that takes action, animation, and cartoons seriously, but not too seriously. I am Jay Scotty St. Clair, and with me today, I've got Zuhair Ali. Hello. Andrew Rogers. Hi, hi. And our very special guest, Nina Helene Hurton. Nina, thank you for Hello. being here. How are you? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I am excited to talk to you guys. Welcome. Awesome. Awesome. We are more than excited. Yeah, yeah, this is really cool to have someone that has actually worked in the field that we're so passionate about as far as animated content goes. You've actually had boots on the ground and been able to create some of this stuff, which is just inspiring and amazing. So thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. All right. As we get started here, one of the ways we like to get the conversation going, given the fact that we are very action animation centric and cover a lot of comic book properties and whatnot we'd like to ask you for your origin story ah origin story oh my yes well deep in the depths of manhattan was born nina helene hirton myself and then uh, we moved to san francisco where i grew up and my dad was really a cartoon junkie i mean one of his favorite stories to tell is that his first date with my mom was a Porky Pig retrospective somewhere in New York. City. So, um, so I, I have a feeling that my passion for animation is derived from my father because he's got such a passion too. And I mean, most, uh, I mean, most kids, I guess, have cartoons in their, well, in my case, VHS collection, but, um, <laughs> but he had a lot of obscure cartoons and a, really a lot of old cartoons. So we had lots of Betty Boop and tons of Fleischer productions from uh, the 30s, 40s, and lots of um, Canadian National Film Board collections as well. So there, there's I was exposed to so much animation when I was a kid. And there used to be this traveling animation festival called Spike and Mike's Animation Festival. And every time I came to San Francisco, that was our religious... Uh, pilgrimage we did that every year without fail um they had a grown-up one too which i didn't go to but (laughs) um which is the sick and twisted variety but (laughs) but we definitely went to the more kid-friendly one all the time and and at one and pixar is right across the bay in um emeryville and they when they started becoming more of a presence um spike and mike's animation festival always used to have john lasseter come over and talk and kind of show off whatever latest short they were working on. And so, I mean, we really got to premiere a lot of the, the very first uh, 3D animated shows, which was super cool. And I really wanted to be an animator. I wanted to be a 2D animator. Then, of course, when Toy Story came out, all the, all the 2D animation sort of disappeared. And so I realized that that was maybe not a viable career option for my future, but it has always stayed with me. And... Um, and I would always find every excuse to draw and make animations. I mean, it came down to, in high school, I went to a very well-to-do progressive high school, and uh, I have to laugh. I don't know why my teachers passed me, because I somehow <laughs> managed to not, I managed to get away with not writing almost any essay. I mean, I instead, I would always opt for, <laughs> they let me do one animated book report, and then it was all over, <laughs> just because I pretty much did. I just kind of kept animating all my book reports or animating projects that they would throw at us. And um, that is amazing. It, it was a very media forward 
school, I would say. And because it was a high school that was a, that's in a rich area, Marin County, it they had a lot of support from parents and stuff like that. And we, they managed to get, um, they put together a program, which, because we were on a block schedule. So basically the entirety of Wednesday and Fridays were a mixed humanities class. So English and social studies or history, um, and then a media class. And they just kind of put 60 of us in a big room together. And then we would create documentaries or animations or, media projects that to sort of supplement all the things that we were learning. So, um, so it was a very well-rounded media education. I'm very fortunate to have gone through that as a teenager, especially because I'm very technically minded and I figured out how to animate, you know, on my cracked version of Photoshop with my mouse. And it's like, you know, back when being 13 years old or whatever, but um, the, that's, that's really where it all started. And then, Throughout that process, I was editing a lot and I kind of realized that that's where it all came together. That's where the animation got put together. That's where the music got put together. That's where the, um, that's where all the live action footage that we'd be shooting got put together, graphics, photos. It's just editing was kind of the, the magic place where the puzzle became a picture, you know, and, and from there, that's when I decided that I would go to film school and make it official. And in film school, Again, I would always find <laughs> excuses to do animated projects or stop motion projects or some kind of mixed media. Um, but once again, somehow they let me pass a <laughs> 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 live action film program. And then, yeah, thus started my, my journey out into the world of trying to be a filmmaker, which um, is also very long and convoluted. But that's, that's kind of the main gist of my origin, I would say. Yeah. I mean, congratulations. That's amazing. There's so many people who have to like, put stuff like that as hobbies on the side, but the fact that you actually had the opportunity to incorporate that into your school life and education life and that it was such a huge part of it is phenomenal and just honestly, it's very happy to hear. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, you know, I have really nothing but nice things to say about those teachers that, as I said, I don't know why they passed me. I, <laughs> I didn't do any academics. <laughs> just drawing pictures and <laughs> music videos. And, uh, but anyway, it, it got done. <laughs> I'm here now. It's all worked out. (laughs) That is amazing because you get kind of scared after a while when you hear all these schools that aren't having art programs anymore and aren't doing all these big things that you not only had those opportunities, but they paid off to the point that you are a professional now. This is what you're doing all of the time. Like, and as much as you said, it's convoluted. I want to now kind of know, all right, how did you get to be in the career path after going through all of that film school stuff? Yeah. Oh, well, so part two of my epic story. Yes. So when I graduated <laughs> film school, um, I went to film school in Toronto at uh, Ryerson University, which I believe is actually changing its name. Um, last time I checked, so I, I'll have to double check exactly what the university is going to be called now. But in any case, it was known for its film program in Toronto because um, it used to be a polytechnic and it, it still taught very much as a trade school. But um, But you could still get a four-year degree out of it, which is kind of the appeal for me. So being very hands-on person. But when I graduated from there, I joined the CCE, which is the Canadian Cinema Editors, made lots of editorial friends, kind of learned the ins and outs of, okay, trying to get into everything as an editor in Canada. Um, And then we decided to move to Vancouver, which was known as Hollywood North. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, it's still 
kind of known as, as Hollywood North, I would say. They shoot a lot of stuff in Vancouver. And it's funny because when you live there long enough and you watch TV, you're like, oh, I've been there. <laughs> oh, I've been there yeah. too. That's, that's not New York. That's not Chicago. <laughs> that's Vancouver. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. When I was briefly <laughs> obsessed with the, the CW-verse with Arrow and Supergirl and Flash, yeah. like all of that was there in Vancouver. Yeah, we we lived there while they were shooting Arrow, for sure. We know a, a bunch of people on Arrow, so yeah. It's... Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, Vancouver's a funny place. But anyway, I, I learned very quickly while I was there that as an editor, as, as somebody in post-production, there was actually very little work that <laughs> at least that paid enough to sustain me in Vancouver, which is hmm. arguably one of the most expensive cities in North America. Um, mm-hmm. I learned very quickly in Vancouver that uh, the editing community is super tiny um, and all the non-Canadian Hollywood productions that, of course, everybody wants to work on shoots in Vancouver, but they do all the editing down south in LA because this is where all the executives are. This is where all the studio heads are. This is where all the money for those productions is. So it uh, it was it was tough up there um, to pay the bills. And um, I mean, I was still cutting everything I could, but it, it was all super low-budget indie stuff. Um, and I had great mentors there and was very involved in the editing community but it there were just weren't there just wasn't the right opportunity for somebody that had just come out of school but despite that i cut a couple of things i cut my first feature documentary uh while i was there um and over the course of that i realized well i got to i got to be able to you know sustain myself and and my family and all that so so i decided that while i was going to keep pursuing editing um my full-time job would actually be a predator so i took a a loan out i bought a camera and uh i basically went for hire around town uh shooting producing editing um a lot of promo stuff a lot of travel stuff a lot of kickstarter videos just you name it um but that also allowed me to do a lot of my own music videos um and i bartered like hell i just would barter with everybody because I'm just paying for everything out of my own pocket. So, you know, hey, I'll film your thing or I'll edit your thing if you'll be my gaffer, if you'll whatever. And that worked out great. Um, and I made it super official by um, starting my business, which is Ojas Peachy Studios Productions. Um, I made it official. And through that company, I... Yeah, I, I pretty much did everything. I mean, I was the one woman show. So um, that really informed me a lot in terms of everything else, not just editing. But um, and I mean, I already had an idea for pre-production and production and all that stuff. But this really solidified like all my workflows. It solidified all my networks. Um, I mean, I knew I knew almost everybody in town. So it was pretty it was a great experience. Um, but there was always that that piece of my heart that's like I really wish I was editing and I really wish that I was more specific in animation because that's I mm-hmm. that's just that's where my heart is really yeah. when it comes down to it. Um so there I had one friend who was working at Bardell Animation in Vancouver, which is one of the bigger animation studios there, and she needed um she really needed a post supervisor. They didn't really have a budget for a post supervisor, but um, but she said, if you're willing to be a coordinator, 
on this show and help me kind of wrap out it, wrap out this show. It's an animated show. Then at least you're in the studio. And when there's an opportunity for to be an editor, maybe we can move you over. Um, so that was cool. I had an interview. Everybody kind of agreed that that was a, something that could happen. So, um, so I worked at Bardell, but, uh, <laughs> Basically, as soon as that show wrapped, DreamWorks came with a whole bunch of really good TV shows, <laughs> TV show contracts. So um, so they were a little bit remiss to try and get rid of their production staff or move production staff because they really needed strong production teams to get the DreamWorks shows moving. Um, but I was happy for the experience and the credit on a DreamWorks show. That was a way much bigger project than what I was working on. And it was, um, I was managing about 50 animators across two different studios and, um, and it was a really fun show, you know? Um, but the pipelines that I learned doing dino trucks as a coordinator has totally informed my editing in so many amazing ways that I really think that anybody who's interested in editing or post-production, well, let me, let me reframe that. If, no matter what piece of filmmaking you're interested in, you should do other parts of it because it will inform the role that you want to do way more um, for the better, you know? And through working there, I met um, the VP of production at the time at Bardell. Um, Bonnie, she had a lot of connections in Los Angeles and I had just had my first baby and starting to feel a little homesick for California. <laughs> my family, my family's in California. So while I was working at Bardell, um, I made friends with the VP of production there at the time, Bonnie, and she had lots of LA connections. Um, I had just had my first baby and was feeling very homesick. I really wanted to go back to where my family was in California, um, for the majority of them at least. And so I brought it up to her that, you know, I was thinking of going back to L.A. or well, moving to L.A. And then if she had any suggestions, and she said the first thing out of her mouth was, you need to work in previs. You would really like previs. <laughs> and so she put me in touch with a previs company down here called The Third Floor. And um, and man, was she right. It was previs really fun. That's <laughs> like the most fun thing ever. Um, of course, that at I... I worked at third floor with the same agreement where I came down as a production coordinator because that's how I was being recommended uh, from Bardell. But, but that worked out nicely because I really got to learn a lot about previs technology, previs pipelines, previs workflows, and kind of what studio previs is all about, which I might not have learned quite as in depth if I had started just as an editor. Hmm. But fortunately I was persistent and the head of editorial, John Caldwell, at the time, he gave me a chance once there was an opening. He said, hey, you got a spot for an editor, finally. And uh, <laughs> so, and there you go. And since then, I've just kind of been editing nonstop. I have so many people to thank for, you know, giving me the opportunity that I was trying to find. But it wasn't, it wasn't easy. It was really a, you really have to keep your ears open for those opportunities. You know? Yeah. Um, and you have to be ready for them. You, you can't. You can't just kind of hum and haw and wish for these opportunities to be there because when they're there and if you don't have everything ready to go, <laughs> then you're you're screwed. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna you're not gonna be able to take advantage of that opportunity. So yeah, it's uh it's definitely a journey. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm sure the listeners are getting tired of hearing me talk about this, but like I'm a I'm a photographer and in high school they actually had like great like media and broadcasting and video and photography programs and stuff. So it was awesome getting to be able to like explore all the options in that before I ever hit college. Um yeah. went to the art institute, got my bachelor's specialized in architecture photography but i did like a little bit of everything um to events and food and portraits and realized how much i hated a lot of things but refined those skills and it came in handy like within my career of people being like hey do you mind doing this for like you know a, a spare thousand bucks and i'm like yeah uh sure so it's like I, I totally relate and heavily appreciate that you know, they always say it's like your weakest link should still be a really strong link. Like it's, totally. it should still be solid steel. Uh, so hearing that from the perspective of a different part of media is really interesting. Uh, there's two questions that I have from your background. And then since you brought up the previs, I guess we can elaborate on that a little more. First one, mentioning that I'm a photographer. What was the camera that you got? The, the first camera that I bought was a Sony EX3. And I liked that specifically because I could remove the lens. Um, okay as opposed to the Sony EX1, which was pretty much the exact same camera, but the lens was fixed on it permanently. So, um, so you're kind of stuck with the, the standard video lens on it. Um, yeah, it's not good. So while the, <laughs> while the manual lens capabilities were not amazing <laughs> on the EX3, it, um, it was a great camera for all the stuff that I needed to do. It, was, it had a nice look about it. I really like, I liked the look that it had. Um, it was video, but it didn't look super video. It, it really kind of had a soft dynamic range as far as whites and blacks goes, all things mm-hmm. considered. Um, and it could shoot 24p, and I just thought it was the shiznit when I got it, and that, that was a that was a big <laughs> chunk of money um, for me at the time, <laughs> being fresh out of, sco- out of school and working for myself. So, <laughs> man, that camera was a workhorse. It never died. It I I could use it for live events. I got to film big concerts with it. It was super fun, you know. Um, just the capabilities on that camera just made it so versatile. I could use it for music videos. I could use it for live things. I could use it for lectures. And I was getting all the jobs that all the DSLR videographers couldn't take, you know. Um, nice. So it was it was a good move on my part to get that camera versus what everybody else was doing at that time, which was DSLR. That was like the new thing. Yeah. So and. And I mean, since then, now I have DSLRs. Uh, now I shoot A7s, uh, Sony A7. Nice. But um, the, but yeah, that was my first camera. I I have a lot of funny stories with it. I mean, when it's so big, it, I mean, I would constantly get mistaken for news media, um, which sometimes <laughs> was problematic. I mean, I I got um, I had to even make myself a press pass to be like, I'm independent. I don't work for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> they would turn me away my camera was so bloody big so, and of course having to cart that around places was also a thing but um i have a big appreciation for uh, all the you know discovery channel videographer people they're, they're all using massive cameras too you know yeah going around the world doing com- really complicated stuff way more complicated than anything i was doing so um yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't but, care one bit about the people on camera who are avoiding the deadly snakes and all that because somebody's <laughs> doing that with eighty pounds of extra gear. <laughs> right? That's, yeah. yeah, the part that you don't see, and it's uh, <laughs> unreal, unreal. <laughs> Do you still have that camera like propped up somewhere? I I don't. <laughs> ah. I I sold that guy, and it's he is hopefully 
still oh, still working. <laughs> I'm sure the memories are more than enough. Uh, the other question that I had uh, in regards to your journey, did you have any level of like solid mentorship when it came with this? Or was it just get networking as best as you can and figure it out as you go? Oh, that's a complicated question because it kind of depends on what the end goal for that moment was. So okay. with editing, for example, I had some really great mentors. Um, I mean, really everybody that I started out with at the CCE, um, the Canadian Cinema Editors, they they were such a great resource. Um, they're all very well-seasoned, mostly TV, um, but some feature editors in there. and they were the Toronto scene. They just, they were super great. You know, um, uh, one of them in particular, Gordon Burkell, he runs a website called the art of the guillotine, which is all about editing news. And he really was probably my main link to the rest of the world of editing, uh, especially in Toronto. But, um, but he was, we didn't have an editing class at my university, which is disappointing um, for the, the full-time students but there was one for the continuing education students and so i i tried to weasel my way into that class anyway even though it wasn't part of the program i was in <laughs> <laughs> but but I ended up hitting it off with gordon and um and he connected me to the cce and other mentors and and he i helped out a lot with the the first well with the launch of are the guillotine. I did like a weekly video blog thing for him, which was a top five edited scenes of insert topic here. So, you know, it might be best five karate fight scenes with Jean-Claude Van Damme. I don't know. Or whatever. But it'd be very like hyper-specific stuff. And just kind of a fun top five list. Um and this was way before anybody else was doing this. <laughs> so I don't know if it really picked up the way that I would have liked it to. But but yeah, he was a really great mentor as far as getting me into editing and, um, and then in Vancouver, the, the first place that I got myself an internship was with Relevision Productions. And, um, and he took me on because he saw specifically on my resume that I liked making comic books and storyboards and, and I could draw and animate, um, because he was also a comic book fan. So, so that kind of evolved from, from intern and helping him shoot stuff and organize and production stuff to, Oh, I'm going to be the assistant editor on this, on his next movie. Oh, I'm going to be the, something happened with the editor. I don't really know the details, but I ended up being the co-editor. And then finally I was the actual editor. (laughs) So, and while we didn't really agree on everything, that was a really enlightening experience in so many ways. That was, that was my first feature. That was my first documentary feature. And his, storytelling and the way that he was kind of teaching me how he was telling stories. I still use, I still hear him in the back of my head when I'm editing anything really. It's like, well, okay, well I now I have to think about the story structure. You know, we talked a lot about story structure, everything that I was reading theory wise in school, he was reiterating in more practical terms over the course of editing that film together. And that's where it, a lot of it really got cemented into me. So, so in some ways, he's kind of my story mentor. <laughs> I want to say. Okay. So, yeah, those those are like the main med- mentor people I think that have been 
rocks in my path, like yeah. um, supporting my path, we'll say. Sounds like a, a a crucial part of your kind of development of your diversity in all the parts of your field. It's yeah. I mean, they editing is really all about story in the end. I mean, there's a lot of technical mm. things that come along with it, but um, but no matter what you're editing in the end you have to figure out, is this the best way to tell the story? And that's always what it's going to come down to. Is this the most fun way to tell a story? Is this the most emotional way to tell a story? Who's going to watch this? How are they going to feel? Are they going to understand yeah. what's going on? This is all kind of editing 101, in my opinion, but I am continually surprised that that younger editors don't actually have any idea about the theory side of editing. They're all about the software. So mm-hmm. I I would like to think that that's what makes me more desirable. <laughs> as an editor <laughs> um because i have a very very solid very geeky um nerdy obsession with the theory but but yeah that, i mean no matter what the more well-rounded and i mean that goes back to my my point before about understanding other roles in your industry you know not just the one that you want to do but just as an editor understanding the production design is it goes a long way uh, it is abstract in how that works but it's still relevant, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. And that's actually a perfect segue into the question I was just about to ask you. You know, you're talking about understanding all of these roles as they come. And I mentioned at the top that you're a musician and you kind of talked about shooting music videos early on in your career. How do you think that that passion for music has changed what you do? Um, honestly, a lot of the times on this podcast, the biggest thing I bring up is how music totally changes a scene. When you walk into the editing room, are you thinking, okay, what music are we going to have? What is this going to look like? How can I better tell the story depending on what music we play at what time? You know, how, do, how are you using that as a tool? And also, is it better because you understand music more? You said being well-rounded. I mean, you have a very obvious skill set at that point coming from a music background. Yeah, you know, editing and music, to me, scratch the same part of the brain. Um, the a, a very big part of music uh, is storytelling, you know, it's story structure. I mean, if you go back to Beethoven, I mean, you can almost visualize the stories that are happening. Disney did that with Fantasia, literally. So there's that, you <laughs> yeah. know. Um, the best music, I feel like, gives you the visuals without needing to have visuals. And conversely, in as an editor, the rhythm of and the pace of how things are said or presented on screen visually is can be very musical. You know, it, it it's a little bit of a dance. You have to figure out where the where the eye is gonna be from one shot to the other because if somebody's moving their head back and forth too quickly trying to figure out what they're supposed to be looking at, then you're going to jar them. You're going to break their their rhythm. If you're not pacing out a joke right, you're you're going to make it fall flat. You know, um, half of comedy is timing, and very similar to music. If you're going to play that note, you better make sure it's in the right spot because otherwise it's going to sound very dissonant. It's not going to sound good. It's going to jar. So rhythmically and story wise, music and editing are very, very similar. Um, and I think in both cases too, at least the way that I approach music writing is that I have all the pieces. It's just a matter of putting them together in a way that they can be understood. So 
as an editor, I get all the pieces given to me, and then I assemble them, and there's there's your puzzle. Your puzzle's now been put together. But that includes the sound, the music, all the pictures, um, any visual effects or whatever. And then in music, you know, you have the guitar, the bass, or the keyboards, or whatever that song is about. All those pieces come together to make this story presentation, basically. Yeah. And you said writing music. Are you... And I'm just going to kind of take away from the animation here with this question, but uh, do you write your own music as well as play all of the instruments? Or what instruments do you play, I suppose, is the question to loop into when you're singing. Are you writing it yourself? Are you, are you doing this whole kind of, no pun intended, song and dance yourself? <laughs> I, get, I get a feeling you might be a little into the guitar. I, yes, you're noticing my, <laughs> my guitar collection back here. You're not even seeing all of them. <laughs> um, I... Uh, Oh, I'm I'm a classically trained singer. Um, my mom is a singer. Her mom was a singer. My dad is a wow. a pipe organist composer. Um, he manages choirs and uh, arranges things for them too. And then um, and his mother was also a singer. That's it, a lot of singers in my history. So singing is really my instrument. Um, but that said, I I can play a bunch of instruments. Not really great, but I use them more for writing, I'd say. So, I mean, I play guitar, probably the best out of all of them. Uh, but I can play piano, I play drums. Um, in my live show, I have like a little electric drum set um, nice. pad thing that, that I'll use. But um, but really, my instrument's my voice. But yes, I do write all my own music. Um, and I perform most of it. Once in a while, I'll have other people play things. Um, or remix things. Uh, my first EP, for example, was produced by somebody else. So um, he stripped a lot of the stuff that I did um, and kind of redid it. But on my last EP, everything, that, that's all me. So with the exception of the, the very last song, which was a remix um, by my dear friend, Davoud. Right. Do you currently have a song stuck in your head right now? Oh, I always have songs stuck in my head. It's going to sound terrible. I uh, so one of there's a a song by Skinned, um, which is she sings about true crime, um, which I'm not really a true crime fan <laughs> per se, but I but I do like scary, like I love horror, and um, and I think she's a great performer. But she recently put out a song called Chris Watts, which is about the Watts family murders, which is terrible. But there's this lullaby that she sings and. My three-year-old heard this, and she won't stop singing it. And now it's always, oh <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's it's creepy as as anything you can imagine. <laughs> this three-year-old singing this like really super creepy lullaby about <laughs> the Watts family murders of all things. And I feel like a terrible parent, but anyway, I, that that is that is what's stuck in my head right now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, somehow the best question you could have asked. Aren't all lullabies some sort of like past trauma? <laughs> oh god, I hope not. Wasn't, wasn't like Ring Around the Rosie is pretty dark or something? There's a lot That's of dark. Fall of the London Bridge, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. There's one about know. like one of the plagues. Yeah, they're they're all meant to be dark. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, to get us a little bit back on topic, away from the uh, music, I like I said, I wanted to ask that question because I just love music, and to all of our listeners, uh. 
go and actually listen to her music. This is not just because she's here to prep for the interview. I obviously went out and listened to things. I then just found myself continuing to listen to a bunch of your discography after doing a preliminary scan through just because it was enjoyable. You do such a very good job that that's why I wanted to bring a bunch of it up. So listeners, please go ahead. Um, if you want to tell them the name that you were under that I definitely butchered in the intro as well. <laughs> uh, it's Derosness, but it, it's the word censored backwards. If that's any help at all to anybody. Who is Me also trying to put the hard C on the end was where I, I screwed it up. <laughs> that's what it was. But I mean, you know how great I am at pronouncing names, so I'm sure you'll kill it compared <laughs> to mine. <laughs> Ah, all right. So jumping back into some of your works here, we wanted to go into a little bit of something outside of our wheelhouse, but we're going to let you take the reins on this. Uh, Talking about Previs animation specifically, something I think not enough people actually get to see unless you're really digging into behind the scenes, what it's looking like before you're going to go to the big screen. Uh, Specifically, just kind of what does that look like in the creative process? Are you doing that all yourself? Are you under strict orders of it has to look like this but you're changing it early so that when it goes to a visual effects team they can you know have the creative liberties where where do you fit into that whole process when you're working on a big film yeah that's a great question well firstly let's let's define previs uh previsualization that's that's the kind of short form of it but um and previs really practically speaking can can look like anything you want it could be storyboards very simply it could be storyboards cut together into an animatic. It could be um, a crazy mishmash of storyboards and filmed footage and clips from other movies, existing movies, uh, just to try and figure out what kinds of shots might work together to tell the story that you want to tell. When you start getting more formalized and you go to a previous studio like The Third Floor, uh, they actually have a team of animators who is working in Maya um, and more. Although recently, I believe they're moving more and more into uh, game engines like Unreal. Um, yes. Or a little bit faster, shinier looking graphics. <laughs> and I mean, it's funny that they, I remember when they described it to me, they said, this is kind of like quick and dirty animation, but it's anything but quick and dirty. I mean, it, it's quick, but the amount of effort and creativity and time that goes into creating it is pretty impressive. And it's really a big team effort. It's not just one person, um, which is one thing that I really liked about it. And every show would be different. You know, um, I did a lot of projects where it was just a pitch. So these are projects that weren't greenlit yet. So you'd get to meet directors um, that wanted, that had a script that wanted to try and sell it to Netflix or MGM or some studio. They'd come with an idea. They'd sort of, pitch it to us and then we would uh do something called pitch viz so um interesting that it might include a story it all depends on the budget but um it might include a storyboard artist to kind of work with the director one-on-one figure out those shots and then they give us the shots um i'd create an animatic and then that animatic would go to the team to animate and then i'd put it all back together Um, so more standard animation workflow i would say um but sometimes it would be very abstract. Ant-Man and the Wasp is a great example of a show that um, was really being rewritten right up until almost the last day of shooting. So um, when we came on, they had not written the third act at all. 
They just knew that they wanted us to work on the climax of the second act, which was at the time the car chase. And so they gave us a couple of ideas and there were maybe one or two sides, but nothing was really written set in stone yet. So, um, so the, the director would give us ideas. The previous supervisor would come up with ideas. I would come up with some ideas. Like we'd all, it was just a big sandbox. It was super fun. And, and then from there I would do a really complicated thing. That was kind of a mix of boards. It was a mix of, clips from different movies, um, car chase scenes specifically for Ant-Man and the Wasp, um, <laughs> for uh, Dirty Harry, there, he's got that one scene where he's yes. chasing a tiny little car. Um, we used that a lot <laughs> in our first previous uh, sequences. You know, scenes from Bullet, and just every car chase scene you can imagine. Fast and Furious, I think I pulled something from every single movie <laughs> to build some of those sequences. Um, but then the cool thing about Marvel, too, is that they really give their fight teams um, a lot of a lot of creative freedom as well. So the fight team choreographers, stunt teams, they'll create something called stunt biz where they're they're doing their choreography and then they basically shoot it in a way that they suggest, you know, that would give it maximum impact. Mm-hmm. Unintended. Yes. So. Um, <laughs> So th- I would get that too. I'd have to figure out how to put that into the bigger picture because, um, you know, sometimes we have to cut away to this or we got to see what's going on in the kitchen or, you know, the chandelier scene is a great example of that. There's a, there's a lot of things going on. Um, the first previous cut of that was a little bit of previous animation, a lot of stunt biz, um, a couple of scenes from existing movies. Can't think of anything right off the top of my head, but but yeah, anyway, it was it's a super fun sandbox. It's just there's really a lot of collaboration. Um and Marvel really trusts the previous team and the director really trusted us too. So it was just it was a good yeah, it's just a big collaborative sandbox. Super fun. But not all previous looks like that. That's I, I would say Marvel movies probably universally look like that. <laughs> they have this down <laughs> to a to a, a well oiled machine at this point. Um they're really into their previous workflow and it shows, I mean, the, everything is so well put together in the end. And, um, and I really think that a lot of that can be contributed, can be attributed to the previs because we get very technical in the previs. We get, we're using the same lens kit that the, that the DP um, is bringing, you know, so we're, always very mindful about okay what lens is being used for this shot and um we keep track of the it's all kind of in a real space so the set designer will give the asset builders and the previs team architectural schematics basically for what they're going to be building in the studio so they're going to build a one-to-one scale in maya um so they can be very accurate but down to the centimeter you know of probably more than that now <laughs> right of like how far the camera is off the ground and um i mean you can get very very technical they these days they even have stuff that is super virtual production where i mean the dp can have a little video screen joystick thing and walk around a giant volume a room called a volume and kind of be in the space and almost have pretty much the exact same capabilities that he would have 
with a real camera, but it's all in a virtual world. I mean, it's incredible the some of the stuff that they're doing right now. Um, and and again, I feel very privileged that I've I've had a taste of all this stuff. <laughs> I'm not in it like I was, but man, just the things that they're capable of doing right now. There's really there's no excuse to fix it in post. <laughs> just really do it all in previous. <laughs> um, I have to say. I love that you're giving us this inside look because I love behind the scenes and they're getting better, but they're not what they used to be of like an hour long documentary about how they shot this film. So to hear you say this technology is evolving to that degree is so cool. And I also just love knowing that they're still giving you creative freedom. I I always was concerned that when everyone talks about the Marvel pipeline being so direct and they have it down to a science that they can figure out how to do a movie so quickly, it's nice to know that they're not just telling you, here's what to do, do it. They're still letting you, you know, come up with the ideas to say that you could have come up with how the car is going to flip in that scene is so... I guess rewarding for you and awesome for us as watchers to know that there's all these different artists who get to play a part in the movies we love. Oh yeah. And I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. I, I mean, Marvel is very, Marvel, Marvel is a really interesting place because they do, they, they definitely know what they want. They have their direction. Um, they're generally very clear about that direction, but yeah, at least my experience working in previs with them um, has been very rewarding and creatively and um, and personally, just everybody's really cool. So there's that as well. Just they really have a nice team that kind of goes from movie to movie, you know. Um, and they they all work together and they all know each other really well. And um, and a lot of times they'll try and get the same previs team too. So it's like it's very in, in that sort of way, it's very nice. Um, I mean, that said, I've heard some horror stories from other other movies. Um, so my experience is definitely not the universal experience, I think. But um, but for the most part, I had a great experience, and um, and it was really fun to see how little really had changed in the final. You know, um, as far as the the stuff that we had done in previs it's very close a lot of the third act i i mean we pretty we previs most of the third act if not the entire thing and like all the quantum realm all the uh all the car chase and i mean obviously performances and stuff are different than like human performances are different than anything that we would animate but um but it's it's very very similar. I think if I were, were to ever try and do a side by side, it would be it would be pretty close. So, you use the word Marvel and horror in the same sentence. So I'm going to ask you a yes or no question. Have you seen the new Doctor Strange yet? No, not yet. Oh, dang it! I was going to tease our listeners, but we can't do anything from there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, elaborate on this a little bit for me. Are there different previs teams at different times for one film? Like, did you did your team cover certain parts of the movie, and there were other teams that covered other parts of Ant Man and the Wasp? Is that how that works? Uh, well, there are other previs studios in Los Angeles, at least. So it's probably similar to the rest of the world too. But um, 
So for Ant Man the Wasp specifically, like did 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 you work on one specific part of Ant Man and the Wasp, and like other studios or other teams handled other parts of it, or did you do all of Ant Man and the Wasp? For I I don't know actually. I mean, we we did the majority, I think, of the previs for that particular uh, movie. Okay. Um, there are other previs studios, and and usually how it works is that they'll farm out certain sequences to different uh, previs studios. I guess I think depending on what kind of budget they have or how specific, how like technical they need to be. Gotcha. Um, third floor is definitely the biggest. Um, I mean, I can't speak for any of its, if it's business practices cause I'm not privy to any of that, but um, <laughs> I, I imagine that Nor they're, do you need all, to be. they're probably not the cheapest <laughs> because they are so in demand um, and rightfully so they're really good at what they do. So, um, gotcha. but uh, uh, I mean, yeah, budget budget kind of always comes down to the factor, but I think the mm-hmm. we we certainly did most of that movie. I mean, we prevised maybe two thirds of that film, so I don't know. Gotcha. I would have to go look at the credits and see if another studio was also involved. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was maybe one or two, but but we did we did a lot. <laughs> we did a lot of that movie. I mean, we did the entire car chase. We did all the quantum scenes. Um, the dream sequence. That was trippy. I I can only imagine like what goes on through y'all's heads when you're working on things like just shrinking down to that level of being into the quantum realm. That was amazing. To look oh at. man, some of the stuff amazing. that got left on the cutting room floor. I'm so sad. Wow, really? <laughs> oh, no. I, can't, I can't speak about any of it unfortunately because darn contracts that are. You said, you said all this good stuff about Marvel. It always comes down to NDAs, not being able to ask anything through that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's tipping the scales for me right there. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I can't I can't talk about the stuff that that didn't make it onto screen. Unfortunately, gotcha. but, that's fair. Um, but it's really, yeah. That, I mean, we had some great ideas on that one. If they ever make an Ant Man three, I hope that some of them get regurgitated because they were really good. <laughs> Quantumania. Uh, um. Lastly, for that, you you spoke about the car chase scene a lot. Do you have a favorite scene from that movie? Not necessarily that you worked on, but just even in like final production, or or it could be like one that you enjoyed working on most, but one that you enjoyed watching the finals for most. Like, what what are your favorite parts of Ant Man the Wasp? I really liked working on the uh, uh, the chandelier and kitchen scene. There were some really unique shots in that, and. Um, some very talented animators working on those, and um, and the logistics that had to go into making that with all the shrinking and the growing and the smashing and the running along the knife and all that stuff. It's like <laughs> that that scene was really it was fun to edit because that, as I said, it was kind of like that was a big mix of a whole bunch of stuff. It was just like, okay, how can we make this make sense? Um, and we're all coming up with ideas to put it together and make it as fun as possible. But yeah, and when that sequence was done, and then when it got shot and it looked perfect, that was just like just the way that we had animated it. That was very satisfying. <laughs> yeah, I have to say one of my favorite scenes was when Ant Man the Wasp were fighting Ghost towards the end, because I was wondering like what action looks like and stuff like that because I, I do martial arts a lot so it's like I'm always like privy to how the action looks 
and just the shrinking versus the walking through things was so fascinating. And it was just really cool how all that stuff tied together and just the frustration on both ends. Like, he's small. Haha, <laughs> went right through me. And this, that, that back and forth exchange was so unique and just such a blast to watch. Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of that credit goes to the stunt team. I mean, they... Let me just say that it's it's not just they hand me one stunt viz and then that's what we use. It, it's constantly being redone and mm-hmm. they're constantly sending me updates and I have to work it in and we got to talk to the the director and the previous supervisor to make sure that everything's hooking up properly. So it's it's really a process and it's it moves fast. Um, Marvel doesn't mess around. Those guys are they're on cheetah speed pretty much twenty four seven. So it's. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the stunt team were all super cool. I mean, our uh, our previous team supervisor, Jim Baker, he's uh, he's a hacky sack fanatic, so like he'd get everybody out to play hacky sack, and we'd always get the stunt team in the second unit to like come hacky sack with us. And it's just yeah, they're, it was so cool talking to them and like learning all about their side of things. You know, that's that's kind of far away from anything that I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not very stunt oriented, so um, <laughs> it's a uh, yeah, man, I just I learned so much from that movie. It's uh, about the whole process and and every just the amount of work that goes into that movie. In those movies, I'm uh, yeah, is amazing. Well, I hope you get to be on plenty more. Yeah, well, assuming it's something you want to do, obviously. Oh, some. I mean, in my perfect world, someday I'm I'm edit like I'm editing a Marvel movie. I mean, I would love to do that someday. Um, I got my fingers crossed for Quantumania for you. yes give me a quantum realm i'll take it (laughs) (laughs) It, it's just amazing to know that you were working so close with the teams that you say you can hacky sack with them i was uh, you could see my face the listeners at home couldn't just the stunned look of what do you mean you get to hang out with these people that's (laughs) i want to do that that's awesome but uh we're gonna hammer a little bit more on ant-man and the wasp just because it's such a visually stunning movie i wanted to talk about how did you figure out your size and scale when it came to the shrinking and everything? That movie is touted for the way that it properly did shrinking and depth of field so that anytime you would have a shot with Ant-Man and the Wasp, you had perfect, you know, what should be blurry that is only, you know, inches behind them actually was because of your actual focus that would happen on a camera on an object so small. How do you plan that out when you're prevising what is going to look good in the shot and not based on that size and scale, as well as how do you figure out how small Ant-Man is in comparison to the knife or the salt shaker or whatever it is? There's a, there's a couple answers to that question. First off, it's worth mentioning that there was an, a specific macro team um, of people that specialized in macro photography, uh, videography, cinematography. And, um, and so they consulted with us a lot about, like for example, inside the computer, you know, what, how is this going to look like? What are, what are we actually shooting with? Um, and, and this is where the technical side of previs comes in, where it is very, very useful for the animation team to not only understand physics of animation um, and realistic physics and VFX physics, but camera, <laughs> um, <laughs> understanding how to use a camera and, and understanding yes, use of depth of field and, as I, as I said earlier, we're doing things in one-to-one scale um, environments and we're using the lenses that they're telling us that they're going to use. And 
so when we're giving when we're given the parameters to use, then we can be really creative. You know, if it's too open, you're gonna get lost. But as long as you have some kind of direction to go in, um, and Marvel was really good about giving direction um, without feeling like we didn't have the creative input. You know, um, at least and on that and trust. But the but yeah, so there's the macro team uh, who were really able to speak to being able to shoot that stuff really accurately. Um, and then when it came to stuff like the van and the and any any point where they're fighting and stuff like that, there was a lot of. I mean, we'd have to collaborate with everybody that that was working in those um, spaces. The like, for example, you know, fighting ghost at the end. There was a lot of uh, the stunt team really came up with a lot of how that manifested, you know, like when she would disappear and go walk through them or walk through a wall or anything like that. Um, and so we would kind of follow that and then plus it, <laughs> you know. Um, and then finally, to answer your question about the scale is that we we literally had little toy scale Ant-Mans um, <laughs> of various sizes uh, with the exception of of little Ant Man, not like not um, microscopic Ant Man, like or, child Ant Man. Yeah, child Ant Man. I forget exactly. <laughs> what but that was the only one that we didn't have an actual height <laughs> for, but we did have a stand-in actor. So we took, you know, we basically built a model of him. Um, and uh, so, so he was the stand-in for anything that you didn't see. Well, I, I think even for a lot of the scenes where you saw um, Scott's face, that you're actually looking at him, you know, but there would be, yeah, I mean, we were, we were working in real scale. And, and I think if you have an understanding of cameras and animation, well, this is what makes the previous team so amazing is that they have this understanding. They have such a, a wide berth of technical knowledge um, to be able to create these shots. And um, of course there are specialists here and there, but, that do very specific things like something called tech biz sounds exactly what you would <laughs> think it, it is. <laughs> I, for example, I know that they use that a lot on game of Thrones. I didn't work on game of Thrones, but, um, but I know many people who did and at like the third floor, they would, for example, you know, the data that they would animate the dragon with, uh, when they're blowing fire and all that stuff would, could be directly input into the crane, into the techno crane on set. And so they would know exactly oh, really? where the dragon's going to be. And then it's just kind of a, and then at that point, it's just a matter of, okay, we shot this footage. Let's just slap the dragon on top of it, right where he should be. <laughs> um, and, and it looked great because it was all planned down to a, the millimeter. As far as I know, it, <laughs> you know, I mean the, the level of, of technical detail that they can plan in previs and typeviz and, and all that is um, really makes for a solid final product. Awesome. And I'm guessing it's a simple, quick answer. Was it the same idea for something like Godzilla versus Kong, but in the opposite direction where you were looking at scale buildings with Kaiju instead of looking at scale household items with a small ant? Let's see for that one. I only really got to help out for a little bit on that one, unfortunately. Um, 
because they ended up going on a long hiatus. I was going to be on it for longer, but um, but they were going through some rewrites and they decided to pause the process. So I didn't get to work on as much of it as I would have liked because I love that's But um, yes, I love hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited to work on that one too. I was like, oh yes, I'm finally going on this one. Oh. So that was disappointing. But um, but with that one, they that one was more script driven, I think. But yeah, unfortunately, I can't speak to the technical details of that one quite as much. I wasn't really as ingrained um, in Godzilla vs. Kong as I was on Ant-Man. All right, that's fair, because it's a good thing you didn't work on the first one, because then I would have asked how Godzilla was standing in the ocean during that one scene where no one knows (laughs) where he came from. So you're safe in that regard that we don't have too much to ask out of (laughs) that. No question, the kaiju. (laughs) (laughs) Just fear and run. Don't ask questions. <laughs> uh, before we move on to some of the animated stuff, do you have any fun stories about Venom? No, or like just genuinely what it was like working on that one on the on the on the Sony end of Marvel? Yeah, that one was that one. I also didn't get to get as into the weeds as some okay. of the other projects that I worked on, but um, I kind of took over that project from another editor, but. Um, I mostly worked on the final battle sequence with that one. Um, that was really cool because they were working very closely with the VFX team, the final VFX team, because they really needed to figure out how the symbiote, um, you know, goop was going to react, you know? Um, so... I don't know. Honestly, the coolest part of working on that was that I got to see a lot of the early iterations of what that symbiote texture was going to be. <laughs> and some of it was really disgusting and some of it was super slick and cool. And, and uh, obviously they found something that worked great. But um, but yeah, the most interesting part of that for me was watching the previous kind of change every time that they they decided how to change the functionality of the the symbiote substance, you know, that the goop. Mm-hmm. So goop, I love yeah, that. So maybe maybe not hey. a, a super exciting story, but I thought it was really. <laughs> People call me crazy because I say that both of those movies are my favorite Marvel rom coms because <laughs> just the dynamic between Tom Hardy and himself is phenomenal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving into the animation a little bit. I have to say, I got really tripped up when I started watching Duncanville, because what I like to do is when I'm editing my photos at the end of the day is I typically have a sitcom of some sort on, something that I've seen before, so that is background noise, right? So I'm currently watching, for the third time, Modern Family. Yes. <laughs> so when Ty Burrell, for Phil Dunphy, I've been listening to him for like four weeks now, maybe. And when I started the show, like, I'm clearly watching Duncanville, and I see that it's not Modern Family, but I keep looking at it like, did I put on the wrong show? Because he's playing himself exactly, (laughs) but just just in an animated role. And I love everything about it. Like, visually, it's amazing. I could not stop laughing the first time that... um, was it what's the son's name? Sorry. Is it is it Annie? Duncan. Yeah, duh. Duncan. When uh <laughs> I'm like looking at the whole cast name right now and my brain just went full Rubik's Cube. 
when Duncan was running for the first time and he had like the little squiggly arm. <laughs> yeah, just like that. <laughs> we're always we're, every was, time we see an opportunity, we're like, "Wait, spaghetti arms, spaghetti arms!" <laughs> it was it was like it was like the Naruto run with noodle arms, and <laughs> I, I was laughing hysterically. Yes, you get what I'm talking about. Finally, someone got a Naruto reference on the show. Oh, you just made my day with that alone. Ah. But yeah, everything about that is. I mean, the cast, of course, is amazing, but visually, that show is just so appealing, and it gives me a good laugh. At least, at least like two, three times an episode. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. I really, I think it's a really <laughs> funny show. This, this next season that is that just started airing recently is is hysteric. It's by far the best season. I mean, they really, <laughs> the writers have totally locked down the characters, and the stories this year are just totally crazy. <laughs> and we have some really, really great cameos. I, it's um. I don't know when this is going to come out, so I don't know what I'm allowed to say or not, or what's going to air when, but um, it's, yeah, there's so many fun people coming on this year, and... We'll keep the secrecy alive, and I do have a, I do have a solid technical question for you. This is one that I get asked a lot, because I co-host an animation podcast, but honestly don't have a solid answer to. What comes first? The voice recording, or the mouth animations? Oh, <laughs> definitely the voices. Yeah. Okay. So first things first is everything's get got everything gets written. Uh, mm-hmm. So once once the script is in uh, a production format, basically ready for um, ready for action, we'll say, then it gets given to the storyboard team, uh, who has a director that directs everybody, and um, the director will. Thumb out his key shots. Like this is kind of how I want this to go. I want to make sure that this performance happens in this way, um, mm-hmm. and then he or she will delegate that out to storyboard artists who will flesh it out and make it into something watchable. You know, and then they'll give me the boards, and I will put it all together with the with the dialogue. Um, actually, sorry, I skipped the <laughs> I skipped a step. So first is writing. Next is recording. They record all the audio record all the dialogue. Um, and then radio plays are created by the dialogue editor who on our show is Angie Faulkner. She's great. Uh, so she puts together everything in a super tight um, radio play that is given to the storyboard artist. Storyboard artists will use that to build, uh, build out all the shots and figure out the performances for each thing. And then from there, it's kind of, they give it to me. I retime it if I need to. A lot of times stuff gets rewritten, gets re-recorded. Um, I'll create a big sound bed of sound effects and just try and make it as watchable and as fun as possible and make sure that the jokes are being timed out. Um, I also have to make sure that any animation that's happening, I sort of have to have like I my knowledge of timing and making sure that there's enough time for this particular action to happen and be animated. I have to make sure that's in there. Um, and then an overall kind of pass of just rhythm, you know, um, Duncanville is a super fast paced show. I, I, mm-hmm. I jokingly call it an ADD show because it's just like joke after joke after joke after joke with not really much, <laughs> uh, pause, <laughs> we'll say. Um, one of the episodes I was watching, it was like the way that the show started and where it ended up. And I was like, what's the relevance between how it's like, am I on the same episode? And then hop like perfectly back to where it was. So yeah, you saying that, um, it was, 
I'm not even going to try to remember what the episode was. I just remember there was one. Oh, it was Friggy. Oh, yeah, that was a good episode. <laughs> that was not yeah, my other editor on the show. Um, we each get uh, ownership over each of our episodes. So um, okay. Jonathan will get to do uh, his whole show from Animatic to Color. I'll get to do my whole show from Animatic to Color. And we swap episodes. So I'll do all the... Oh, okay. Um, I do all the even number episodes. He does all the odd number episodes. Okay, but, gotcha. Um, oh, nice. But yeah, Friggy was that was a great episode. <laughs> yeah, Friggy was one, and there was a couple of others where it's like I had to I had to check to see if I was on the same episode because I was wondering how like it started and how we ended up here. And I know that Family Guy does that a lot too, where it's like it started off here, where it's like how did we end up in this spot? Just try to connect it, but it really is a fun show. Like I I might just have to put Modern Family on hold and just keep watching this while I work because <laughs> it. <laughs> It it definitely helps out my my stressful days. <laughs> and uh, Zuhair kind of brought up at the start that these voice actors are amazing comedians, and they are really acting themselves as opposed to acting a role. And it it really shows in the way that they're doing their mannerisms and a little bit of the physical comedy that they bring when they're speaking. They all have a presence. Are you watching them? you know, on stage and then thinking to yourself, okay, I could pluck a little bit of the usual ways that they would do something and deliver a bit? Or how are you bringing such life to these characters when you're going through this process? I think a lot of the characters kind of play themselves. I mean, uh, Bex, for example, is... Um... Oh my goodness, I'm blanking on her name right now. Um... Betsy Sodaro? Yeah, Betsy Sodaro. Betsy Sodaro is a very specific sounding comedian and, and the character even is drawn to look just like her. So it's, um, so that's an example of a character that is like that. I would say Amy is a little less being herself on this show. Um, she really, fair. She, she manages to, to have Duncan be very separate from, from Amy. And it's interesting how, like if I'm just listening and I'm, picking takes or I'm trying to find effort sounds or filling in gaps or anything like that. Um, if I'm not looking at the picture, there are moments where I can't decide if it's Duncan or Annie, but for the most part, she's really good at, at those characters being those characters. Um, and I mean, props to her. That's, that's hard <laughs> doing the same show and having to play two characters at the same time, you know, not necessarily at the same time, but, um, but if you're sitting and you're watching a table read, for example, she's having a conversation with herself and she, <laughs> this is in real time. <laughs> so, you know, she's reading the script uh, and she has to be Duncan for a second. And then she has to be, Andy. what are you doing? Don't do that. And, God, mom. Ugh. And it's just, it's amazing how she can just put that, you know, uh, she's really incredible. I will say that I, I don't necessarily consider sneaking things from other, from like their non Duncanville stuff. Cause there's a lot of legal issues involved with that but right sure. um but that said i will say that one of the one of the most fun things to do <laughs> is um and I, I feel like some people would find this tedious but uh the showrunners on the show the scullies they they love effort sounds and and so they'll they'll basically task me with filling in a lot of efforts and so we have this giant library of different sounds from the actors and you know i'll go through a character and they'll just kind of scroll one i'll scroll through them with these previews and it'll just be like it gets ridiculous and 
there are times where my husband, my family will come, especially working at home, they'll come out and be like, what are you doing? <laughs> I just don't worry about it. Then. So. Uh, I'm hoping that this is a this is an even episode, but when they walked in on their parents and they were like beating the rug, <laughs> yes, that was, was one of my episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine you sitting there, <laughs> just hanging out the window beating the rug. No problem. <laughs> this is how we celebrate our anniversary. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> so it's not exactly the same, but. <laughs> But I get I do get the joy of going through libraries and, and hearing multiple versions of the same sound by one actor and deciding which one is appropriate for that exact moment. <laughs> it's a talent. <laughs> do you have a favorite character? I love Jing. She's one hundred percent my favorite. Yeah, yeah. She's so smart and funny, and she reminds me of my three year old, even though she's older than than my three year old. But <laughs> um, but yeah, that that kid is funny. Yeah, her and her and Wolf are probably my favorite, uh, especially because I just watched Zach Cherry on um, Severance, yes. and this is like the complete opposite, especially like the deep <laughs> voice and everything. I was, I, I'm one of those people who's like, I try not to look at the voice actors because I try to keep like my media separate from like these people's actual lives, so I don't intertwine them too much. But for the sake of like this interview, obviously I was looking into everybody and. There was a few of them where it's like I never would have guessed. Like I was so surprised when I saw Wiz Khalifa on the lineup, and now it's when it, when the episode came up where he was like, "Julius, my mixtape. Julius, my mixtape. Julius, my mixtape." I was like, "Okay, yeah, that totally is him." But it's it's really incredible, like how well this cast does. It just kind of like making their own characters, and not. I mean, obviously, Ty Burrell was a different thing because he's literally just playing. I'm convinced that's just him as a human being now, but everybody <laughs> else just does such a fun job. He's so he's a sweet, sweet person. He's a really awesome guy. Do you <laughs> get to interact with them at all? I not really. Um, okay. I, I, you know, at the rap part, the one rap party we got before the pandemic. That's uh, for season one. That's uh, everybody was there, but um, but generally speaking, I don't really get to interact with the actors too much. Um, okay. Most of my time is spent with the director, the series director, well, the show director, the series director whoever sees all the shows, all, yeah, all the episodes. And, um, and then the showrunners who are the Scullies, um, who are the same people that have been running the Simpsons for like 25 years or something. Um, so they're all veteran animation people, sitcom, sitcom, animated sitcom people. And it's, um, yeah, I've learned a lot on this show too. And I mean, I've, I've mm-hmm. been doing animation for a minute, different forms of it. This is my first big TV show, I'd say. but that's yeah. Those are the people that I really work the most with. I would say on a day to day basis, anyway. So, Duncanville kind of being relevant more towards Curious George. The last interview that we did was with one of the head editors of Tom and Jerry, and I kind of want to ask you a similar question that I asked him for something like Curious George and being somebody that has kids. Is any of the content that you grew up with? And knowing what your kids consume a factor in how you work on Curious George, or do you put all that aside and just do what you do? Every project has a specific audience. A lot of studios like to say, oh, well, it's for everybody, but it's really not. <laughs> mm-hmm. The only way that you can effectively market anything, um, and I learned this 
very early on in my in my freelancing career before I mean as a predator is that you know if you're not targeting then you're not gonna you're not gonna make a return period so so any story that's written is aimed at at a target demographic um, and if anybody else wants to join in then awesome but generally speaking that this is the audience that they're gonna go for so in case of curious mm-hmm. George their audience is you know, under six years old, <laughs> really. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that there's older kids that like it. I'm sure that there's grownups that like it. Uh, I know there's grownups that like it actually. Um, but, uh, but that, that is the, that's the target. So no matter what I'm editing, I mean, it could be a horror film. It could be a Marvel movie. It could be Curry storage. It could be Duncanville. My job really as an editor, like it's like the number one part of my job description is, to remove myself and and pretend that I am the intended audience. And that's how I will completely understand whether or not this is working. Because if I'm looking at it as myself, I'm not the target audience. (laughs) So um, I'm not doing the project any favors by being myself. I mean, sure, I can, for my ability to put myself in the shoes of a four-year-old is certainly informed by my having raised two kids now, but, um, but really the answer to your question is it, I, I have to take myself out. This project mm-hmm. is almost never my project, unless it is my project, then it's different. But um, <laughs> gotcha. nine times out of 10, I'm editing something that is not my project. That's not intended for somebody in my demographic. So I need to be able to put my headspace into whatever it is we're trying to, whoever it is we're trying to sell to. Um, you know, certain pacing is going to work better for certain demographics. Curious storage needs to be kind of slow, you know, for kids to be able to keep up with it. Um, mm-hmm. That's not to mention that there aren't like upbeat, energetic sequences, but sure. But even those sequences are the cut ratio is is much less than it is in Duncanville, <laughs> which is really designed for adults. I mean. My dot, my eight-year-old really likes Duncanville. She has now seen everything because I work at home and so does she. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's seen everything and she likes it. You know, I think a lot of the jokes are over her head, but, um, <laughs> but ultimately, you know, that, that sitcom is, is really designed for adults. You know, it, yeah. I think it's good for young, young adults really mm-hmm. in the end, but, uh, a lot of the jokes are really aimed at, um, like Gen X and, and above too, I would say there's lots of yeah. books in there for sure. So Google references. Um, yeah, that's kind of funny show. It really does kind of hit a lot of demographics. Um, but yeah, hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. I'm just always curious on like what, what motivates people really and kind of what goes to the head as they do this. Now, a totally unrelated question. Are you into anime at all? I'm not like hardcore, but I know I know enough. I've seen lots of the classics, we'll say. Okay. You got my Naruto reference, so that made me happy. <laughs> I haven't actually watched a lot of Naruto, but I know a lot of the references. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh I typically would ask if you had like a Mount Rushmore of anime, but if not, what are some like honorable mentions if you don't have like an official like God, this is amazing, it deserves to be sculpted inside of Mountain? As far as anime specifically, I mean, really any Miyazaki film 
it, it's okay. I, I'm a big fan. I think you put Miyazaki's uh, face on there. And my, my daughter loves them too. Um, both of them, actually. So, yeah, there's lots of Miyazaki happening in our house. Um, so we can just sculpt Totoro on the side and just yeah. have him represent all the, all the Miyazaki films. Totoro would 100% be on my Mount Rushmore. <laughs> he deserves it. Cute furry animals. See, um, yeah, that one. I really liked Evangelion. Um, Although it's been a long time since I've seen it. And I think a lot of it was kind of over my head too when I when I first watched it. But hmm. um And we can also open this up to any other just animated things in general that you were like, this is a big inspiration for what I'm doing, the thing that I would want everyone to see to truly like appreciate animation as an art form. If you really need to fill in the other two. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, appreciating animation as an art form, I mean, man, if you watch anything by the Fleischers, um, those guys were really pioneers in the technology, and um, they just, they influenced so much. I mean, Cuphead more recently is, is really trying to throw back to that vibe, you know, which is yes. cool. And, and I mean, of course, because I'm a geek and I want to make sure that I um, indoctrinate my children with good animation. I force them to watch <laughs> Betty Boop and, you know, a lot of old cartoons. And fortunately, they're into them. They like them. Um, and it's cool that she, that even my eight-year-old can recognize the parallels too. And she, like she was watching Cuphead and, and I said, oh, you're watching Cuphead. Do you like that? And she's like, yeah, it's kind of like the Betty Boop. I'm like, I'm doing my job. <laughs> I trained you well. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the, and the rubber hosing, uh, you know, that, that Duncan Bill references that too. It, the amount of, yeah, if you need a, a lesson in, in animation craft, then Fleischer's. I mean, they did it all. They did natural animation. They did rotoscope animation. They did live action and infusion. I mean, it's it's all there. You know, they really they did so much for the medium. As far as I'm concerned, they just they did not get the credits that they I think really deserved. Um, <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, Fleischer Brothers. Gulliver's Island. Gul- wait, Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver's um, Travels, I believe. Movie that was a Fleischer Brothers film that I had on VHS that I probably watched more than anything. And nice. I don't even know why I watched it as much as I did. I just, I really liked, I just thought the animation was great. I really liked the art in it. Even as a kid, I just liked watching the art in that movie. I didn't even like the story that much. <laughs> um, but well, as far as being influential to me, I mean, um, Monsters, Inc. is very high on my list of movies that really inspired me, but that is also partially in part to the fact that I got to visit Pixar while they were in pre-production for that. So I really got a taste. Oh, wow. For that world. Um, my stepmom had a friend of a friend or some degree of, of a person that um, was a storyboard artist there at the time. And he agreed to give us a tour. So I got a, I got a tour. Um, he pitched me a scene. It was the Yeti scene with the snow cones. And, <laughs> it, and yeah, he showed me the process of what storyboard artists do at Pixar. And I just thought that was so cool. And 
then of course I went and saw the movie. So, I mean, there's, there's that nostalgia and that connection to it, of course. But I mean, even as a movie, the storytelling and the character designs and everything. I mean, I, I must've seen that movie about 30 times now and I, it's, I still cry. <laughs> That's how oh, yeah. it is. So, um, that, and if we're going way back to when I like, what inspired me to be an animator, it's probably the Fox and the Hound, Aladdin, the Little Mermaid, the the '90s kind of Renaissance Disney, you know, Lion mm-hmm. King. Yes. Um, Beauty Hercules, Beast, Tarzan. Beauty and the Beast is very important to me. I think um, just a lot of the the new technologies that we're doing that they were doing with the 2D animation in those in that era was so cool to me. I thought that was really cool. So. Yeah, that's all. That was a little rambling, but <laughs> yeah, we love it. That's what we're here for. I will wrap up that discussion by saying, if you are looking for an anime to watch, there's one called Spy X Family. It's only five episodes in. I thought it was supposed to be an action flick, but it's actually a comedy, and it's very funny. <laughs> Spy X Family. Okay, check yeah. It. And um, you kind of hit a lot of these but we actually did have a few listeners who sent in questions oh um so well we'll read it out how they wrote it and then if there's something that you felt like you wanted to elaborate on or you were like no i kind of got that already then you can either elaborate or pass on depending on what you're going with andrew you wanna you wanna hit those for us yeah so we had one of our listeners courtney o'brien asked uh you know what is the most exciting part of the job for you what makes it fun and you know like you kind of touched on are you a fan of all of the content and if so do you add an extra element of wanting to honor that project right away and how are you connecting to all of these things more as you are a fan Ooh, well i i'm fortunate that i have been a fan of pretty much everything that i've worked on so far um i mean Cartoon-wise, we'll say. <laughs> There's a couple things that I, I wish I didn't take on um, in the live-action world, but it's that's mostly few and far between. Um, I've been very fortunate to be presented with quirky projects that suit my quirky personality. So um, I think the most exciting part of it is... Oh, I don't have a good answer to that question. That's a great question. It's all exciting. It's all exciting. Like, I... I really, really like what I do. <laughs> I like everything about it. It's uh, I love sometimes it's as simple as all that. I want to do. Um, I think that the most exciting part about it is that somehow I've managed to to make it my career. <laughs> it's you know it was a long road to get there, but I I got there and now I'm here and I'm damned if I'm going to lose it. So it's so <laughs> uh, yeah. I I love I love music and movies. It's all I ever want to do. Um, it is extra exciting when I get to work on a project that has great talent on it. Um, I mean, <laughs> Curious George, I, again, I'm going to go back to my library reference, but the library of Curious George sounds from, um, man, I'm failing on names today, but I mean, he's, he's a, he's a legend. He's a legend. And I have to find it because I'm going to, I wish I could help you. Usually I'm quick with this stuff, but freak Volker. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you think that I would know this off the top of my head? Yeah, Frank Frank Welker. He, I mean, he's one of my favorite voiceover artists, he, and like super exciting to to go through a library of monkey sounds. And I have to say that 
that he's so incredible too. Uh, the the casting, uh, the records that you get back. I mean, you can sometimes you could hear the talk back, and and uh, nine times out of ten they would just let him run, and so it'd just be like this three minute clip of. <laughs> And it's just like all these crazy stuff. <laughs> I'm curious for I'm like, this is this is amazing. This is this is <laughs> And then what's even funnier is that sometimes it'll get delivered to me as as a timeline where all the takes are top of one another. <laughs> and so <laughs> if you play them back all at the same time, it's just this cacophony of curious George. And it's it's absurd. <laughs> That's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. It's terrifying, actually, because it's just like every single monkey sound you could ever think of at once. But um, yeah, so I mean, there's that. And then uh, there was a, an animated show. There, there's a couple shows actually where I've, uh, another one of my favorite voiceover artists is um, uh, Jim Cummings. And he, I got to meet him actually on a, a third floor thing that, um, because he, he's Winnie the Pooh among other things, but um Oh, to help out on um, Christopher Robin very, very early in the previous world. And um, and so he came in and I was basically recording sides with him and the director. And like that, (laughs) you should have seen my face (laughs) when the coordinator told me who was coming in the next day, because I just basically had like a total fangirl freak out. I mean, it, it was ridiculous. And the entire time he's sitting there reading Winnie the Pooh. And I'm trying not to cry <laughs> because I'm like, Aww. I can't believe I'm in the same room with one of my voice heroes. I just, ah, this is amazing. So it's, yeah, it, it's really fun when I get to work on things with people that I really enjoy listening to, you know, um, Amy, I mean, Amy Poehler, working on a show with Amy Poehler and, and everybody on that show, really, they're all crazy talented, uh, but I mean, yeah, Amy's legend at this point now, too. So I, that is very exciting to be able to work on stuff like that. And wow, there was a lot to that question. <laughs> yes, there there was. And I think you did hit all of it because you talked about how it was fun, how you're a fan of the people. And I mean, the only thing you didn't really answer was the most exciting part because you just talked about seven exciting parts. So I think that that definitely fits that bill. <laughs> <laughs> it's all exciting. <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> uh, we- we are extremely happy as well. Uh, we had another listener question as well. This one came to us from Gabriel Hernandez, and this is another three-part question, so if I need to break it up, let me know. Uh, how does one get into the career? How long does it take to kind of do your part of the job as an editor? And what advice would you give to someone who wants to pursue this career, how they should get their, you know, themselves going in this world? Yeah, well... Editing. All my friends from Art Institute would definitely appreciate the answer to that question. Yeah, yes. well, editing specifically, um, I mean, there's a couple different ways you can get into it. I went into it very unconventionally, I would say. Um, the, the typical path is that you would reach out to a studio, be a PA of some kind, uh, preferably a post-PA. You know, you get to learn the post-production workflow. Um, and um, and then you kind of work your way up and eventually you become uh, an assistant editor, which is a very technical job. You really have to know your software to be able to do that. Um, and then after that, you kind of get, keep moving up, you know, you get to editor. Um, in animation specifically, there's a couple different kinds of editors. 
um, and depending on what kind of project it is, you might want to specialize. I mean, I know people that only do animatics, for example. Uh, I know people that only do picture, for example. Um, I love doing both. I'm, I attribute that to my deaconess and passion for animation, um, just kind of taking me through that whole thing. So I, I'm happy to do everything or just one thing, whatever the project needs me to do. Um, but if you really want to get into animation editing specifically, it is kind of its own beast and it is a little bit more technical. And I think if you want to give yourself an edge, then it would really benefit you to not only know your tools really well, so go learn Premiere, go learn Avid, um, learn the other ones too, why not? But those are the main <laughs> ones you're going to hit. Uh, but know your software and edit as many things as you possibly can. But also make sure that you learn some animation. You don't have to go animate, but you should have an understanding of timing. You should have an understanding of frames and how and how movement happens within frames um how fast how slow go nuts on editing theory there's tons of them out there it, it's always going to come down to clarity and story really in the end um animation editing can be very technical but it still always comes back down to story always so whatever you can do to beef up your story skills and your timing skills that's going to stand out as an animation editor specifically, or an animatic editor, as opposed to like live action stuff. But it, yeah, that, that's kind of, you want to do that and you want to make sure that you're taking every opportunity you can. I mean, I, I took on everything that I could paid or unpaid that that's, there's, I was just building my reel, building my reel and I didn't get precious about it. You know, um, there are a lot of people out there that love to get precious about that stuff and won't work for less than X or whatever, but more power to them if they can still pay the bills while doing that. But it's um, the way I see it, you're going to learn something new from every single project. And especially the ones that have no budget <laughs> are the ones that you're going to have probably the most creative freedom to really explore and learn. So yeah, just don't be afraid to get out there and take those opportunities and learn as much as you can. Um, but yeah, for animation specifically, I really think a lot of anim the best animation editors are the ones that actually have some kind of a background in animation timing, specifically, or animation. Um, regardless of what kind of animation it is, that, that goes for both 2D and 3D. Yeah, I, I love that answer. And through this whole interview, I can't speak for the listeners, but I feel like I've just learned so much about what it really takes that we're thinking an editor, or I'm thinking that an editor was someone who's just at the end of the process, fig figuring out where it goes and kind of fixing everything to get there. You're talking about so much more of the creative side that it makes sense that you're the one that properly tells the story when most people will just think it's going to only be the writer tells the story, the animator, you know, puts the story on the page, and you just polish up that final product you have to do so much more than that and it, it's just been very insightful to think about every step being as important and as creative as it is i i have loved all of that throughout this interview just from my own learning perspective there's an old film adage that they 
teach in film school. I don't know if they teach anymore, but back in my day, <laughs> they used to teach uh, this old film adage that the um, a movie or TV show is written three times. It's written by the writer first. You get the script. It's written by the direct. It's rewritten by the director uh, in the process of shooting or in the process of storyboarding. In the case of animation, uh, and finally, it is has the final rewrite by the editor who is intended to be the objective third eye over the whole process. Um, even in live action, I mean, of course I'm a little biased because I'm an editor, but I, I'm like the number one advocate of bringing on your editor in pre-production. You know, your editor mm-hmm. is going to be able yeah. to have the foresight of, well, can we actually fix this in post or is it going to actually yeah. cost you more money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fix it in pre? <laughs> um, you know, or even having an editor on set. That's there's uh, a great example. Baby Driver. Um, they had that editor was on set. Uh, he came on from the very beginning. He made animatics very very tight animatics to the musical sequences. And as they were shooting, he would offload it, drop it in, and make sure that it was all fitting properly. Like as they were they were shooting. So. Um, I mean, that's that's an example of a very, very specific, tight process to try and get a very specific, tight look. But but it paid off. I mean, the, the musical sequences in that and all the guns going off at the exact right moment with the music and everything like I mean, that was all that couldn't have been put together as perfectly. Without that process in place, it, it would have been it would have been different. It would have been a different thing it still would have been cool i have no doubt because they're all super talented people but the way that they did it was a great example of of really controlled perfectionism (laughs) you know and and you can see it it really works in the final product um but yeah it's Editing is really the invisible art that a lot of people don't really know what our job description is. They don't understand what it is, uh, our intention, you know, the intended point of our job is. Um, I mean, I I take it upon myself to educate people about it as much as possible because I love it. But um, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting job. (laughs) We're we're constantly kind of like hidden in the corner, you know. Producer studios love to think that we're still cutting on film and they put us in the dark basement, never to be seen again. Um, but the, the reality is that, I mean, we're, we're kind of the, we have almost the biggest responsibility. We have to put all of it together and make it all make sense and make sure that it's sounding good and looking good and that it's being understood by the people that it's intended to be shown to. And, um, and everything that I love about the job, you know, that's yeah. is, yeah, it's a, it's such a well-rounded job with lots of lots of factors to it. <laughs> and then you talk about the uh, the importance of having the opportunity to, you know, explain these to people and share these to people. I do want to share that today is my birthday, and the fact that I was able to hear these stories from you was more than enough of a gift that I could have received today. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and share all these wonderful experiences to me, Andrew, J. Scotty, and all of our listeners. Oh, my pleasure. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> uh, do you have anything you'd like to plug? 
uh, anything that any future shows that we should be keeping an eye out for, any Instagrams you should be following, any Twitters we should be interacting with. Well, definitely come check me out on Instagram if you want. It's the Derazness <laughs> censored backwards. <laughs> I'll, I'll probably just spell it D E R O S N E C. Um, that is my Instagram handle. But uh, so if you're interested in, I mostly post drawings and um, music related stuff there. But um, but if that's something you're into, I'm also super easy to contact there if you wanted to ask me more questions. That's cool. Um, but uh, as far as things to promote, I mean, definitely watch Duncanville. As I said, this season is really funny. There, some of the stuff that's happening this year is is great. I really hope we get a fourth season. Um, and uh, everyone, rack up those numbers so they get to season four. Let's go watch it right now. <laughs> yeah, <they're>, <laughs> <laughs> please, please watch our show. No, it's uh, seriously, seriously, it is funny. I'm not just saying that's a. I'm I'm just so impressed with the season. I can't stop talking about. It. But. Um, but other than that, I mean, there's a short film that I cut called Requiem for a Crab that will be premiering on YouTube uh, this Sunday or Monday. I don't remember exactly. Oh, fun. Oh, no. Oh, exciting. But um, but as of next week, if you type in Requiem for a Crab, crab on YouTube, um, then uh, that should pop up. And that one's a, it's a dark comedy, but it is a hybrid live action animation. It uh, I kind of hesitate to give too much of the story but the an animated crab is involved and um and it was a really fun show to work on and um if you like quirky offbeat dark comedies then you will probably enjoy requiem for a crab so there's that <laughs> um yeah those are the two most exciting things right now we will definitely add those to our list <laughs> <laughs> yes you had me at animated crap. I was I was on board right then and there. It reminded me of the one from Moana right away. <laughs> well, this this is a, a very grumpy crab, and um, but he's he's so beautifully animated, and uh, and it's very it's a very sweet, insightful film too. In the end, so yeah, I highly recommend checking that out. But yeah, we will hopefully. definitely do that. Thank you so much again for joining us, Andrew. Do you have any last things? Uh, no, definitely uh, make sure to keep up with us on Instagram because I will be tagging uh, Nina in our post when this all goes live so you can get all of her socials directly there and that'll be a great way to share this with your friends so they can all hear how awesome this interview was. It went a little long because we just had a great time and should probably address uh, most of the eagle-eyed listeners or eagle-eared listeners. Uh, Jay Scotty had some internet problems about halfway through, so... He was missing, but all of these questions were also his before you think he just disappeared into the ether. So th- thanks for helping as always, Jay Scotty, and thank you for doing the edit after this is done. But yeah, that's all I have. Zuhair, anything for you? Uh, I got to co-host on 323 with Reed Murphy a couple times. We did some animated talk there. We did some football draft talk there. Uh, a lot of fun time as usual. Got a lot of content coming out. Tis the season. Obi-Wan's coming out. Doctor Strange is out. Moon Knight is out. Um. Please be kind. Watch your mouth. Don't blurt things on social media. But also go to strandedpanda.com to check out all the shows that are covering all the content because there's lots to talk about and we can't do it all. So we will be continuing our Young Justice coverage before we talk about other stuff. Uh, Thank you again, Nina, for joining us. Uh, Tune in next time. That's T-O-O-N-I-N. And as always, stay whelmed. Until you have another interview, muscle, muscle. 
Thank you for listening to the Animation Deliberation Podcast, a proud member of the Stranded Panda Network. If you would like to contact us, you can email animationdeliberationpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at animationdelib1. For this and other great shows, you can visit strandedpanda.com or join the great community that is the Stranded Panda Chat Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash svchat. Tune in next time, and remember, stay whelmed. You're invited to take a vacation from everybody else's vacation to a place where you can explore cypress swamps and magical gardens and see a 65-foot waterfall that once powered an old mill that you can walk through today. Or just float along the cool, rushing waters of an old-fashioned swimming hole. See the places and plan your journey at visitmississippi.org slash outdoor adventure. Mississippi. Wanderers welcome. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. When you sign up for BP Me Rewards, you can get five cents off every gallon of gas every time at BP or Amico stations. That means more savings and more whatever you'd like to use your savings on. So treat yourself. It's on us. Visit BP.com save to learn more. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. When you sign up for BP Me Rewards, you can get five cents off every gallon of gas every time at BP or Amico stations. That means more savings and more whatever you'd like to use your savings on. So treat yourself. It's on us. Visit bp.com slash save to learn more.